You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. We are at an incredible crossroads with our health and human civilization. Right now, we're dealing with an infectious disease that has gone viral. It has gone viral. It's a virus that has gone viral. There are many aspects of this equation that are being overlooked right now. And so today we're going to dive in. We're going to talk with one of the foremost experts in the world on immune system function. And I want to highlight this by saying, for example, we are talking about in the context of COVID-19, it's a viral infection that has a tropism towards our lung tissue, right? So it's targeting our lung tissue. It's where some of this hyperactivity of the immune system, the inflammation, the degradation of the capillaries involving the lungs, all these things are taking place. But what's not talked about is the fact that we have a microbiome of our lungs that are really an interface interacting with the microbes that we're exposed to, the viruses we're exposed to, the pathogenic bacteria we're exposed to. We have a microbiome within our lungs that is a regulatory force in all of this. What are we doing to support the microbiome of our lungs? What are we doing to support the hub of our microbiome itself, the hub of our immune system itself, which as you're going to learn today from somebody who's been in this field as a gastroenterologist studying this for 40 years. It's become common knowledge today, the importance of the microbiome, but he's one of the originators and one of the pioneers in the field, helping to educate the public and students as he was working with students at UCLA and understanding the importance of this dynamic in the hub of our immune system, about 70% of our immune system is located within our gastrointestinal tract, within our gut. This is how important this is, this interaction with our microbiome and the integrity of our gut itself is one of the most important fundamental things that we need to address right now because our immune system is under fire. Our immune system, not from viruses per se, but from our environmental conditions, creating the susceptibility and the degradation of our immune system, allowing these things to really take us down. And so the question is, what are we gonna do about it? So that's what we're gonna dive into today. We're gonna address and really break this down and look at how all these systems work and what are some of the intelligent steps that we can take to fortify and to make us more resilient moving forward. So really pumped about that. And obviously our nutrition is a foundational piece in this. It's feeding our microbes the things that are advantageous because it's really our gut microbes who are interacting with our food first, right? They're the front line deciding what's going to get shuttled into our tissues, for example. You know, what are they going to nibble on and what is going to get into our, quote, human cells? And we know that key nutrients, for example, are hallmarks of immune system integrity and immune system function, one that everybody knows, every man, woman, and child knows is vitamin C. But the question is, how? Why does vitamin C work? Why is it important? Well, vitamin C is a regulatory force. It has roles that it's playing specifically in regeneration of tissues. So helping to heal damage, but not just that, but also just general growth and not just repair, but growth and development of our tissues and cells. So Vitamin C has a big role in repair. And as far as the defense side, do we have any clinical evidence regarding COVID-19 and vitamin C? Well, check this out. A recent study cited in the journal Pharma Nutrition 
investigated the impact of vitamin C in relation to the cytokine activity associated with COVID-19. So this is the cytokine storm that has been the headline and on the tip of a lot of people's tongues in regards to COVID-19. And what they found is that vitamin C is effective at inhibiting the production of cytokine storms. These should be headlines. But early on, unfortunately, in all of these things taking place, this information was not only put on a lower tier of importance, some of it was even blocked, it was censored. You weren't able to talk about foundational principles regarding the immune system, right? So key nutrients. But for me, I'm still looking at this with a more balanced perspective because I don't want folks haphazardly running out and getting some synthetic form of vitamin C when in reality, we need to get educated about what does is, what is vitamin C really do? And also, what are the most advantageous sources? What are the most bioavailable sources? What are the sources of vitamin C that have biopotentiators to make it work effectively in the body and not just be wasted on us in a sense and not bioavailable, not absorbable? And what, what imbalances come along if we're just dumping massive amounts of supplemental synthetic vitamin C in our bodies without the other cofactors that keep it in balance, right? So these are all questions that we're being presented with an opportunity to understand a little bit better. And so for me, this is why I'm such a huge advocate of botanical, super concentrated, high vitamin C dense foods like camu, camu berry, C-A-M-U, C-A-M-U. I've been a fan, been studying, been utilizing camu, camu berry for over 15 years. It's one of my all-time favorite things. And a big reason is that just under a teaspoon of camu, camu berry powder provides about 700% of your RDA in vitamin C. But it really does show up as a powerful protection for our tissues, unlike isolated vitamin C products. This is highlighted in a study published in the Journal of Cardiology. And it had folks who were proactively creating damage and oxidation of their tissues. It had 20 male smokers to consume camu camu berry daily over the course of a one-week study period. And what happened was the camu camu berry consumption led to significantly lowered oxidative stress and reduced inflammatory biomarkers like C-reactive protein. So these are things that we're seeing with infectious diseases as well, damaging the lungs. And what's more, here's the thing, there were no changes in these markers in the placebo group who received an ordinary vitamin C tablet, an ordinary synthetic version of vitamin C, the camu camu berry did something special. And for that, the researchers indicated that the combination of other antioxidants from the camu camu berries had a more powerful antioxidant effect than standard vitamin C products alone. Camu camu berry, number one. Number two, amla berry. Amla berry, again, been studying for years, one of my favorite things, acerola cherry. These are three of the most concentrated sources of vitamin C ever discovered and massive amounts of peer-reviewed evidence as to their efficacy. And they're all combined, contained in a formula I'm so grateful for that there's a formula that actually has all three. I used to buy them separately. 
You know, I get it from this company, that company, but now there's one that has all three without any binders, fillers, unnecessary ingredients that comes along with so many different supplements today, right? They might even get an organic version of a superfood and then there's coming along with binders and fillers and chemical additives that a lot of folks don't realize the detrimental effects of those things. The Essential C formula from Paleo Valley is in a league of its own, period. This is something you need to have in your cabinet, in your superfood cabinet. The vitamin C concentration is remarkable, but it's all of the other biopotentiators and cofactors, the other antioxidants found within these superfoods that makes it so special. Head over to paleovalley.com forward slash model. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y dot com forward slash model. Again, paleovalley.com forward slash model. Use the code model. You get 15% off their essential C formula. And their turmeric complex is out of this world as well. So, so good. They've got incredible snacks for the family, all grown and prepared the right way. Really paying attention to regenerative agriculture. This company is just incredible. Check them out, paleovalley.com forward slash model. Now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled Fantastic Podcast by Aunt Jenny Five. I just found this podcast in the last six or so months. I am sorry I did not find it much sooner. I love the content and format as well as the study-based information that Sean provides. The content is interesting and relevant. Thank you for your hard work and an amazing podcast. Wow, thank you for leaving that review over on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate it so much. And listen, if you've yet to do so, pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the Model Health Show. I appreciate it immensely. And on that note, let's get to our special guest and topic of the day. Renowned gastroenterologist and neuroscientist, Dr. Emran Mayer is one of the world's foremost experts on the gut-brain connection. Over the past 40 years, his research and published work has offered groundbreaking evidence of the critical role of bio-directional interaction between the brain and the gut, and more recently, on the role of the gut microbiome in these interactions, with implications not only for gastrointestinal diseases, but for metabolic, emotional, and cognitive health. And this was long before the topic of the microbiome became a buzzword or something that's very popular in our lexicon in the world of health and wellness today. And now in his new book, The Gut Immune Connection, How Understanding Why We're Sick Can Help Us Regain Our Health, Dr. Mayer proposes a radical paradigm shift in which he puts the gut microbiome and the gut-based immune system at the center of our current health epidemics. Let's jump into this conversation with the incredible Dr. Emran Mayer. Well, first of all, Dr. Mayer, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Well, thanks for having me on the show, Sean. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. So I'm so grateful to talk to you because you've been in this field for four decades now. And now a lot of the stuff that you've been learning and teaching and really working to get to the public, to get to students, now is becoming a part of our lexicon and understanding the connection, for example, between our microbiome, our gut, and our immune system. So can we start with that? Can you share some insights about how our gut, our microbiome, and our immune system are really interconnected? So, you know, zooming into our GI tract, um, it's not just the tube that 
processes and transports food from the stomach into the intestine. And um, if you look into deeper with, with a microscope and dissecting it, you'll notice that it, it is a very complex organ. So like a few microns, you go inside the wall of the uh, GI tract and you find the biggest part of our immune system, 70% of our immune cells are located in the gut and you don't, you, you don't see it. They are silent um, and they don't just sit there, but they also you know, move throughout the body to other areas and send their signaling molecules if that system is activated throughout, throughout the body. The microbes are separated only by, I mean, again, this is all in, 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 the, in the magnitude of, of microns, so less than a millimeter. Um, so the, the microbes are sitting just very close to that um, uh, immune system location. They only separate by two things. One is a, a mucus layer made out of sugar molecules. And the other one is the lining of the gut. These are cells that are very tightly connected to each other. And they separate these you know, 40 trillion microbes from our immune system. So the immune... And it, Kind of an amazing engineering feat that nature has has produced there. Um, you know, who would dare to put some of the most, um, I mean, the most sensitive system in our body, the immune system that senses everything that's foreign and potentially dangerous from 40 trillion microbes. You know that. Um, I mean, they're all beneficial to us, the ones that live in our gut. Um, but every once in a while, there's other microbes that you ingest or that get into your GI tract that um, that could kill you. So you know, it's um, so that barrier is probably one of the most important things. That barrier that separates the inside of the gut um, with its microbial world from the immune system. That barrier is kind of the key to understanding, uh, you know, what's what's a healthy gut and what happens if that barrier breaks down, because that starts a whole avalanche of, of, of things that first localized in the gut, but then it goes throughout the body, reaching all, all organs. Yeah, that should be just really startling for us, first of all, that 70% of our immune system is located in our gut. And this interaction with all these 40 trillion microbes and how close proximity that it is, the influence that they have is obvious once you understand that. But you said in our design, and that makes me think about in your book, you mentioned how we often refer to the gut as the second brain, but it's really the first brain. It is the first brain. And so in evolution, the first um, marine animals called hydras, and there's still descendants of these animals around today. Um, they were basically a floating digestive tube, tiny, you know, a few millimeters, and they had a nerve net, um, wrapped around them and so it, it was so the first first or i mean the first life form was a um was a very simple digestive tube you know and which ingested things from in one end and expelled uh, residue on the other end and this nerve net that was wrapped around this tube um, regulated the contractions and the uh, expulsion of, of waste material that design, you know, this is an, another amazing thing. That design uh, from really, you know, billions of years ago has been maintained in pretty much all 
in you know pretty much all life forms. So bees, cockroaches, snakes, um, you know, fish have that design that you have an, a nerve, a nervous system wrapped around the the, the gut. And what happened um, at some point? Um, so this is like the enteric nervous system, and later from that, you know, developed uh, in more complex animals. Um, we need a central nervous system that doesn't just focus on the gut, but focuses on the world around us. And interestingly, also that at some point in the ocean, these, these things were floating around the ocean. That probably by chance, some uh, microbes from that were the dominant life form in the ocean um, ended up in, in inside this digestive tube and started. This was a very beneficial thing for for both because those microbes living in this floating um, gut essentially had free transportation, were always exposed to nutrients coming in, uh, and were protected. So this was also maintained in evolution. So two basic design principles, you know, a digestive system with a, a nervous system around it, and then inside with, with a microbial population that started to live in symbiosis with, with yeah. the other two systems. And yeah, it, it, it is kind of amazing. So the, the, the molecules that the microbes brought with them because you know they've been living for 3.5 billion years in the oceans and had a lot of time to uh, perfect their communication systems and all the information that they um, what they tested and what worked out what didn't work out was encoded in their in their genes so now you know microbes have a um, hundred times more more genes than we humans have. You know, we have twenty thousand genes. Microbes have their genes number in, in the in the millions, and it's because they had that long, much much longer than humans time to collect this information, and they transfer that information about how to build neurotransmitters and signaling molecules to the, the nervous system in the gut. And ultimately, that information made it into our brain. So now, um, people always ask, you know, how could how could the microbes even communicate with something complex as the brain? Well, it's because they use the same neurotransmitters and mm. the same signaling molecules. Um, and it came originally from the microbes, not not from. So it's not that we gave the microbes our our information how to design neurotransmitters. It's the other way around. Yeah, that's so fascinating. So we've got the enteric nervous system in the gut and we've all enteroendocrine system in the gut. And that it's like a communication superhighway in a sense. Like we tend to, and I love this that you talk about our reductionism transition in, in, in medicine where we just keep isolating everything when it's really so interconnected and our development. So we kind of, we started off, well, our, our vast, vast long ago roots as just being a tube to kind of extract nutrients. And we eventually sprouted, a, a you know, we had this, the, the gut being the first brain, and then we sprouted another brain to handle other things, basically. And we see that that's kind of the, you know, the final frontier, but really our gut and the gut health, it's kind of like all coming back to that. And so what I wanna ask you about in the same vein, you mentioned this really important thing, which is the genes. 
And I think that, you know, when they did the human genome project, for example, we, we thought we would have like a million genes, for example, it's just 20,000. But we have such diversity in who we are. And I think a big part of that is the microbial diversity we carry within us. So can you talk a little bit about that, comparing how many genes we have as humans to the genes that we might carry within our bodies that are microbial? Yeah, so this is a really important point because initially, you know, people got excited to say 99% of of our cells are not human or um, so talking about the cells because that's how the science started. you know, are not human and, 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 and they're bacterial. In the meantime, we know it's about, you know, 60 to 40% uh, the, the ratio. So almost half, half were human and half were microbial. But if you go to the, to the genus level, or, 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 I mean, not, not to the genetic level, then, then you realize that difference is much, much bigger. So yeah. from 20,000 to um, 40 to 100 million genes in the in the microbes and genes basically the gene number means uh, information to build things um, and encode functions Um, most of the functions of these genes we don't really know you know so we're just scraping at the at the surface of this but i I think um, the biggest excitement if somebody goes into this field is what are we going to find out you know what all these what all this information does you know and what role does it play in um, things you would never thought about are related to our genes, like brain function and and aging, and you know. So there's there's going to be a lot of these these unknown factors, but that I think is gives us sort of the greatest. I mean, I I sort of come to this point if you say that genetic information somehow relates to the intelligence of that system, not, not, not the individual organism, right. you know, they, they don't really have intelligence, but it's, um, if you think about a beehive that has, or an anthill that has a certain intelligence as a collective thing. So I think the microbiome, not just in the gut, but also, you know, there's communications with the microbiome in the soil and uh, in the oceans. If you take that system together as one, look at it as one, it's obviously spatially distributed like nothing else, you know, and it's mm. invisible yeah. on top of it. That's got to be the most intelligent system on the planet, you know, right. and what that implies, I mean, one thing that we can see, you know, with mass extinction, so we had five of those in evolution, that most large animals disappeared. They could not, you know, they could not survive these the microbes didn't, you know, the microbes survived all of this. So they have skills and knowledge and survival um, information stored how to survive these these dramatic climate changes and uh, atmospheric changes. Um, so that that's, uh, to me, that's one of the most exciting things, you know, that there's something inside of us that we don't see, we can't touch. Um, so you really have to use the imagination to think what goes on in there. But even if you go inside with an endoscope, you don't see it, you know. Um, but that that invisible entity that lives in darkness and without oxygen contributes this amazing amount of information to our health and, and plays a role if it's altered in our disease states. That's remarkable. So if we go gene for gene, at least 99% of our genes are microbial. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and so when I give my talks, I always show this this, uh, this figure, this schematic figure. 
is it's it's a white outline of a, of a human being, and it's all white, um, and that's all you know microbial genetic information. And it has a very thin lining in red, which are the human genes. So it gives you an idea. You know, we're just like. Um, yeah, it's it's um, this relationship, these dimensions is is something awe-inspiring, kind of you know. That's powerful. So, if we're understanding what genes are, which essentially they're instructions, and if we take that one tenet and understand that ninety-nine percent of the genetic material that we're carrying around, if we go gene for gene, is microbial, and understanding that they're inherently doing something. These genes or the microbes are inherently doing something. There's obviously gonna be a big impact on all of the systems of our bodies. And I love this about your book because you talk about some of the various roles that our gut plays in diseases that affect different organs, like the brain, for example. So can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so coming back you know, to this interface in our gut between the, the microbes, the immune system, the endocrine system in the gut, so the largest part of the endocrine or hormonal system is also there. Um, and <clears throat> that that interaction influences what, what the immune system, what, what the hormones do that circulate through our body. Nothing stays in the gut. You know, it's, it's all, so, so people say it's, it's not Vegas. You know, it doesn't stay in, <laughs> it doesn't stay in the gut. Yeah. Um, and so these are all long distance signaling uh, mechanisms. And, they, and by the way, the vagus nerve is there. Yeah. As well yeah. The, the vagus nerve is there, and um, um, so there's these different communication channels that amplify the signal. What what happens in in in, in the gut? So, I'll give you one example. You you ingest something that the microbes have never seen in evolution, like um, a Twinkie. So so yeah, just or a pesticide. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Roundup is a good example. They've yeah. they've never seen all of our medications. So the microbes with their knowledge, they can break this molecule down. They have, they have enzymes that can break this down. They, they, they don't say, well, I've, I've never seen this. So, so they break it down into smaller molecules that then interact with the immune system and, or with the endocrine system. And then that generates a signal that goes through the body. And depending on your genetic vulnerability, so, be it for, uh, you know, Alzheimer's disease or, or, or be it for depression, when these signals get to the brain, they, they change the brain in, in, in a way that you have now a higher risk of developing these diseases. They're not, these microbial signals are not the only cause of these diseases, but in a vulnerable individual, they can, you know, trigger the transition from health into disease. And that's, um, so this long distance signaling is clearly, so it can go through what we call neuroactive metabolites. So many things like the amino acid tryptophan, microbes can break it down into other molecules that interact with the nervous system. Some go into the brain, some turn into um, serotonin, you know, this ubiquitous uh, signaling molecule. <clears throat> so the, this is one way that they generate from our food substances that mm -hmm. then are distributed through the body and to all organs. Another one is to the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve has 
90% of that nerve that connects all our organs with the brain goes from the, the organ to the brain. So it's, uh, so we still don't know what information is all transported in, in such a nerve, you know. Uh, <clears throat> so if something happens at the gut level, micro produces like short chain fatty acids from breaking down, um, you know, fiber molecules that acts on a receptor on the vagus nerve and that goes to the brain. And the third one is the cell wall or the microbes itself is a signaling trigger. <clears throat> so there's components like uh, lipopolysaccharide or LPS. <clears throat> when that comes into contact with the receptor on an immune cell, it will trigger the activation of this immune cell, which then produces cytokines. And these cytokines again, go throughout the body. and um, um, so at least three parallel communication systems are engaged, which amplify and spread the message throughout the body. It's, um, and the, the, if you use this network terminology, um, you know, the, the, the gut is really the hub in this, in this network, yeah. in, in this global mind-body network, that anything, um, anything that happens at the gut level has a high propensity to influence everything else. Yeah, and again, that should seem obvious at this point. And you being a pioneer in, in helping to bring this data to the public and seeing it start to really sprout and, and show. Um, but you just mentioned that interaction with tryptophan getting converted into serotonin, which is a precursor for melatonin. Mm -hmm. And we tend to think like sleep is a head thing and a lot of it's rooted in the gut. Or, you know, the big focus, we have a hyper focus when we're talking about anxiety and depression around certain neurotransmitters, which a lot of this is rooted in the gut. And yet a lot of attention isn't going to addressing the real root. And I got to mention this. I actually, when you mentioned the pesticide, it's so funny because I wrote this down earlier and I didn't know if I was going to talk about this, but I was reviewing a study that, and this was published in Scientific Reports, and it revealed that pesticides create a pro-inflammatory state in the gut. And here's the big thing and why I wrote it down is that it was found to also disrupt microbial gene expression. Can you talk about the impact that the in, that industrial agriculture has had on our gut health? Because this is something you address in the book and it's a really big deal. Yeah, this is a big thing. So industrial agriculture essentially is chemical agriculture. You know, it's gone from an organic agriculture that is indigenous people use that way. Um, uh, you know, with natural fertilizers from the farm animals that go back into the ground. So what, what modern agriculture has done, <clears throat> particularly or increasingly in the last 75 years since World War II, to increase productivity and output, um, you know, and feeding the world. And that, that actually has been successful, but at a very high cost because um, putting all these chemicals, not just into the soil, you know, has killed a lot of the microbes. So similar to what we've done with antibiotics in humans has a good side, wonderful side, but at the same time has a hidden cost that we now realize. The second thing is by killing the, a lot of the microbial ecosystems in the soil, the plants um, have lost the ability to produce their own, you know, their own medicine, which is, is, is a group of molecules called uh, polyphenols. And I mean, that's a whole topic for, you know, we could talk about this for an hour, one of my favorite topics. 
that the soil microbes stimulate the plant roots to produce these molecules that then are transported up the stem of the plant into their, into their leaves, into their fruit, um, and defend them against any kind of stress. So it could be chemical stress, could be insecticides, could be, <clears throat> um, you know, um, drought, anything that stresses the plant um, generates a signal down into the root system to communicate with the microbes in the soil, which then stimulates the, uh, this medicine production, these phytochemicals. And um, in industrial agriculture, that's greatly diminished. Right. So that results in the need for pesticides um, and insecticides because these plants are no longer, they grow like crazy as long as you kill everything else around right. it. They're not adaptable. So they're not adaptable and so you start out with killing the microbes in the soil, then you have to start killing all the bugs and the pests that, that could compromise this plant because it's no longer producing its own medicine. And so that's created this vicious cycle that <clears throat> they were now producing plants that are that look beautiful. You go to uh, you know Galsense or Whole Food Market and see these beautiful looking, um, but the nutrient content is not the same, you right. know, because uh, <clears throat> Because these molecules that protect the plant at the same time are the main components of the nutrients that are contained in, in the plants. And when we, when we eat these plants, a big health benefit is not just the fiber, but it's also these plant medicine molecules, you know. Like, which, po like polyphenols. Like polyphenols. And um, so we're now eating a diet that's really greatly diminished in this. And... So industrial agriculture, uh, you know, I like to call it chemical agriculture, has really played a major role. And then we're kind of coming back to realize that now there are some pioneers in <clears throat> that promote this regenerative organic agriculture. It's, regenerative means you put things back into the soil. You don't just constantly extract things from it, but you put it back so the microbes can grow and you restore that ecosystem. So, uh, you know, there's people like... Um, um, I mean, the people behind uh, Kiss the Ground, the Kiss the Ground movie, it's a good example. <clears throat> Yvonne Chouinard from Patagonia is another example who's really been pushing this, this concept. Uh, and so Ryland Engelhardt is, is you know, is, is the mind behind the Kiss the Ground um, um, group and, and, and the movie. So there's a growing number of people and you know, they have a plan to really change agriculture back into a into a regenerative organic system, which would solve a lot of problems. Because one of the things also, so we don't really know what some of these pesticides and insecticides do to, to the plant and then to our own, because we eat the plants to our own microbial ecosystem. You know, just for glyphosate, <clears throat> To get FDA approval, they only had to do a few studies, short-term studies in cultures of cells and they found in human cells and they found that glyphosate exposure, so the substance, you know, uh, that is Roundup, that glyphosate exposure did not really affect um, human cells because human cells don't have that shiitake uh, pathway to metabolize it. So they, they concluded from... A few short-term studies, it's safe, it doesn't affect uh, human cells. This is fine. 
This is way be before the microbiome science came out. Right, right. So in the meantime, we know, you know, microbes can break down most chemicals that we ingest, including glyphosate. And, and believe it or not, there's very little science on that. And I don't know, it almost seems like I had to be, you know, a, a, a conspiracy theorist, but it's almost like if that science is, is not supported, is, is not like you won't get funded yeah. doing this because the commercial interest in the lobby behind that industry is so gigantic that, um, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I'm, I, I don't want to get into any sort of political implications of this, but there's certainly, it's very surprising that at the time where we're so conscious of, you know, the, the health, the gut health and everything, that there's not a flurry of studies that show yeah. definitively that glyphosate does harm not just our microbiome, but also secondarily our, our own health. Yeah, the regulatory systems are really backwards because we're trying to prove that they're hurting us instead of proving that they're not hurting us. Yeah, yeah. You exactly. know, it's really backwards. And it should be obvious, again, like these are newly invented compounds. With the EPA, for example, there's like, close to 40,000 chemicals approved for use in fertilizers. Like it's so many, it's insane. Mm. And once we get in this conversation, so I mentioned earlier about directly damaging uh, microbial gene expression, but that's just one part of it because, so the, the ingestion of these chemicals can disrupt our microbiome, but also the lack of key nutrients. Even if we're eating organic, the foods that we're eating today are lacking on these nutrients that feed our microbes. And so this is what I want to ask you about next, because we've seen a direct impact and you highlight this in the book and it's so important. The direct impact is a vastly declining richness and diversity of our microbes. So can you talk about those two different things and the current state of our microbes versus people who are eating more of a normal diet? Yeah, so just explain these 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 two terms, and and they they are important. So you know that applies to any ecosystem. So the richness and diversity applies. It's not just for the microbiome, but um, so diversity means you know how many different um, species of organisms are there, um, and that could uh, so high diversity would be something. If you extrapolate this to a city, you know if you have one, if you have one couple from from Latin America and one couple from um, African-American and one couple, um, you know, from Asia. And, and, you know, the rest is all uh, Caucasian. So that's a diverse ecosystem because you have, you know, four different and could be more, uh, more diverse. But it's not necessarily a healthy ecosystem because that one representation of one species is not mm. sufficient. You know, you need a richness. So you need, if you died, uh, you know, divide up the population, you would want to have 25% of each of these populations populating that ecosystem. And <clears throat> so you need, and, and that's the richness. So you need the richness and the diversity uh, in order to get, um, so the main property then of an of such an ecosystem is it's resilient against perturbations. It's very, anything you do to it, it will bounce back. It will not, you know, something will break down and it will be resistant to change. Uh, <clears throat> and that's clearly a property of, of our own, uh, you know, microbiome. It's a good and a bad thing. The good thing is, uh, you know, if you eat something, uh, get, a, um, get a GI infection, you eat something bad, um, 
or have a stomach flu, it doesn't knock out your system. It always comes back almost the same with if you take an antibiotic once, you know, it doesn't knock out your system, even though you kill or suppress a lot of the organisms. It comes back because of its resistance or resilience to perturbation. The bad thing is, if you want to restore a, 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 a sick microbiome, like we do in, um, so there's a lot of attempts now with this fecal microbial transplant, you know, you want, because we can do this in mice, artificial models, that you take a rich, diverse, healthy microbiome and put this into a mouse gut. <clears throat> you can do all kinds of things. You can make an obese mouse lean, you can make a depressed mouse uh, normal behavior. Um, but you can only do this because these mice start out, these laboratory mice, without having any microbes. And so the so-called germ-free mice. Mm -hmm. So in a situation like that, yes, you can change it if you put something in. But even in people that have a compromised microbiome, it's still resilient. So it won't, won't allow you to do that. It will not um, you know, if you do have, there's very few conditions, it's actually literally just one condition where a fecal microbial transplant in humans has, has really worked. And that's because, again, the resilience and the resistance for, for, for change. Um, our microbial, um, you know, this ecosystem has been declining in both diversity and richness. So we are losing... Um, and, and that's just kind of perpetuated through generations. It gets worse, a little bit worse in each generation. Um, <clears throat> we, we've been losing a lot of this diversity and uh, richness. And some, some strains have disappeared that you find in populations like, you know, hunter-gatherer remnants in, in, in the world. Um, so we've lost a lot of these species, not, not species as much, but strains. And this is continuing. If you don't change something dramatically in how we interact with the environment and with our food and with you know the chemicals we use, um, this will continue. You know, and some people have predicted it will lead to massive pandemics. You know, because um, it makes us more and more vulnerable to 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 infections. And it's it's interesting. So. Um, a book came out before, a few years before the pandemic, Missing Microbes by um, Marty Blazer. And in his last chapter, he talks about this, you know, the threat of pandemics. Hmm. This was way before the actual right. pandemic we're, we're in now. And um, so we got a taste of it, you know, what what can come even worse in the future, I think. This, this is really getting to a place of uh, something very visceral for us because we're seeing again firsthand which you can really see coming from a mile away and understanding that truly a big regulatory force of what we see as our immune system has so much to do with the health of our gut. And in the book, you also detail, again, there's a decline. If you want to look at it like an, an analogy of like a rainforest and this loss of species and how does that affect other species and you know the richness and diversity, and we've been losing these strains. Many have gone extinct. Many are, uh, they're on the endangered list you know, and so there, we still have an opportunity to kind of turn these things around. But I, I, I sent this paper over to you and I knew that you had already seen it, but I wanted to ask you about this because you also mentioned with the richness, our, it, it really holds within it its, its, its ability to bounce back. When we have any kind of intrusions or anything, any abnormalities, it's the ability to bounce back. 
And this recent paper was published in the journal Gut and it's titled Gut Microbiota Composition Reflects Disease Severity and Dysfunctional Immune Responses in Patients with COVID-19. The researchers uncovered that hospitalized COVID-19 patients consistently had lower levels of immunomodulatory bacteria coinciding with higher levels of inflammation. And you would think that this would be getting more attention. And what I noticed also with the study that kind of jumped out afterwards, and even more so now talking with you, is that they noted that even after they, quote, cleared the virus, their microbes didn't bounce back. It was still at that kind of decline state where they're missing microbes that are associated with robust immune function. Yeah, no, this is a very interesting point. It has not received, uh, I mean, this will receive a lot more attention. I'm, I'm sure there's, I mean, there's so much research going on in this field that in the next five years, we'll see papers coming out on, on many aspects. We needed yesterday though. Yeah, we, yeah. <laughs> so we, we, we've been so absorbed with fighting the, the pandemic and you know the, the vaccine development, which is phenomenal from a scientific uh, standpoint. <clears throat> Less so from preventing the next one, and the next one will come. You know, if if you see, um, we've we've had several smaller ones, um, and but with all the things going on that we've talked about before, the likelihood of these events is increasing. So, um, yeah, what is the connection? So, um, COVID nineteen enters, you know, our our body really through the respiratory system. So you're wondering what. Does the gut have to do with it? <clears throat> but then we talked earlier also about the fact that 70% um, of the immune system is in the gut and a lot of the programming and modulation of the immune system that then goes to all the other organs happens at the gut level. So whatever, so the microbes have a big word to say on that. And so the finding that they reported there, you know, could be interpreted in two ways. One is, if you have a compromised um, gut microbial system, um, that by itself will increase the risk that you have exaggerated immune responses to any perturbation. And so it's quite possible that these people that they studied, they had these abnormalities before they got infected. In this study, they, this wasn't, they, they brought in people that were infected and studied them. But in a, in a real longitudinal study, you would want to know, and, and these studies are coming out, somebody who didn't have it and then developed it, did they have this microbial abnormality before that put them at an increased risk? And I would say that's the more likely. <clears throat> because we also know, so some people get a more severe, got a more severe form of the, of the infection. Um, some developed this long COVID um, phenomenon that the symptoms don't go away. And people that are at a higher risk of developing these more severe forms uh, <clears throat> are, uh, so we know who, who these high risk populations are, uh, you know, unfortunately it breaks down along socioeconomic um, categories uh, with socioeconomic, uh, even racial, and it's probably not genetic, it's probably the, the correlation of socioeconomic with, with racial. The environment. Uh, yeah, the environment, so that um, that a big part of our population eats very unhealthy food, uh, either because it's cheaper um, or because they don't have access to you know the whole food markets and uh, and and all these healthy things that are being promoted. Like on the west side of LA, it's not in, you go to downtown areas, you don't see the same. So 
th those segments of the population had a much higher risk of not just getting it, but getting a more severe form and also for this long COVID complication. And we know people that, um, that are on this poor diet, you know, have a, have a compromised microbial ecosystem. Yeah. And they're missing exactly those organisms that they found in these, in these patients. So I, I think there's a pretty good link between, and, and it spans, you know, from, uh, <clears throat> it's not just a biological thing. It's, it's, it's also sociological, it's a political thing that, that and, and hopefully will draw more, more attention um, to, to populations that were most severely affected. And it's, it's in, 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 in the jargon of the discussion, in, in the media, it's always said, well, it's the people that have more comorbidities that are more, more likely to develop the more severe form. Well, what these comorbidities are, as I point out in my, in, in, in my book, are the consequence of a unhealthy um, gut microbiome and overreactive immune system. Um, so it all fits together, you know, and I think um, regardless where this infection attacks your body, it will always be influenced by what goes in by your gut health and, and, and indirectly then by the things that you feed your gut, you know, are your, are your microbes. Yeah, there's so much here. And I want to ask you about one of the common treatments that was being used for COVID very early on that you mentioned in the book and how this might have contributed to exacerbating the problem even more, especially down the line. And we're going to talk about that right after this important break. Sit tight. We'll be right back. Researchers at Yale University School of Medicine, the researchers found that one of the biggest culprits behind our obesity epidemic is neuroinflammation. Brain inflammation increases the propensity of obesity and obesity increases the propensity, the likelihood of neuroinflammation. They go hand in hand. So we've got to address this. One of the things that's been proven to help to reduce neuroinflammation is cited in a study published in PLOS One, the Public Library of Science One, revealed that the super green algae spirulina has the potential to one, improve neurogenesis in the brain. So the creation of new brain cells, specifically the hippocampus, is where we get a lot. And the hippocampus is the memory center of the brain. This is kind of important. And two, the study revealed that spirulina is able to directly reduce neuroinflammation. It's incredible, right? This, it's helping the structural integrity of this master gland, this master organ controlling everything about us, right? The most complicated object in the known universe is also one of the most fragile. We've got to protect it. This is why for myself and my family, spirulina, chlorella, ashwagandha, all of these powerful foods are put together in the incredible blend at Organifi. And this is a regular staple here in my family for good reason. Spirulina being one of the highlighted ingredients, not only does it have this benefit for neurogenesis and neuroinflammation, but also has rare nutrients like phycocyanin. The same thing with chlorella as well. That Phycocyanin is one of the few things that can trigger stem cell genesis, right? The creation of new stem cells. Very few things have been found to do that. And then chlorella is in the formula as well. 
And that growth factor, the chlorella growth factor, is just remarkable. And also it's benefits in helping your body to metabolize and eliminate heavy metals. And the list goes on and on, it's incredible. But the bottom line is this, it tastes good. It tastes good. I've experimented for, you know, at least about 15 years with all these different green formulas, different green superfood blends. Many of them's not very good, okay? Many of them, like, I, they shall remain nameless, but I've tried them, you know, back in the day before tasting good was an option. It's just like, just get it in by any means necessary. If you gotta do the whole pinch the nose and get it that whatever. But now pleasure leads to longevity. Pleasure leads to taking a practice on and imbibing it and making it a part of your routine, your habits, your, your daily life. So this is why I appreciate the fact they've created a formula that actually tastes good, all organic, cold processed, so you actually retain and get the nutrients that we're looking for in Organifi. So pop over there, check it out. It's Organifi.com forward slash model. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash model. And you get 20% off, 20% off their green juice formula, their red juice formula, and also their gold as well. So they've got some incredible blends all done the right way with integrity, again, organic, low temperature processed, and yummy. All right. Organify, you got that yummy, yummy. Organify.com forward slash model. And now back to the show. All right, we're back and we're talking with Dr. Mayer about his new book that I've got right here, The Gut Immune Connection. It is available right now. Go and pick up a copy like yesterday. It's an important part of your library. Before the break, we were talking about the connection with our microbes and COVID, which is showing itself more and more in the data. And I'm so grateful for this too, as you mentioned, we've got great researchers out there who are asking these questions and looking into this. But if this would have even happened 20 years ago, this might not have even been on many people's minds except yours, you know? And so seeing that this is unfolding, but in the book, you also mentioned that early on, a significant number of folks coming in with COVID were being treated with antibiotics. So can you talk about that intersection with our declining richness and diversity in microbes and our rampant use and often overuse and often inappropriate use of antibiotics when in this case, we were even dealing with a viral infection? Yeah, and, 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 and again, coming back to this book, you know, um, Missing Microbes from Marty Blazer, uh, he, he put this, I mean, this is his main area of, 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 of research and, um, in the meantime, you know, a lot of people have picked up on, on that idea that we overuse antibiotics dramatically. I mean, antibiotics are the most important um, medical invention, I would say, that have has saved millions, hundreds of millions of lives. But when it's used indiscriminately and without proper indi uh, indications, um, it has a huge collateral damage on um, primarily on this microbial world. And, and, and it's, it's in different ways. It's... Um, you know, it starts, it starts at, at the time of delivery. So prophylactic administration of antibiotics to women, um, mm. um, in, in the, uh, during delivery to prevent, um, you know, serious potential serious, uh, streptococcal infections, um, gives the first blast of, of, of this microbial, I mean, I would call it poison, you know, to, to the emerging microbiome in, in the infant. Then, uh, you know, 
a lot of babies now are born prematurely. They end up in the neonatal intensive care unit. It, intensive exposure to antibiotics for uh, <clears throat> often for weeks, you know, to prevent uh, infections. And then there's also, you know, so the whole sterile, the whole sterile environment during delivery that that is typical for for hospitals. So the exposure of the of the infant coming through the birth canal um, is is also compromised. So we've done with antibiotics everything possible, even in the first days of life, mm. to compromise that system. And it hasn't really changed dramatically. You know, this has not changed. Um, so, but, but then it goes on. If, if you look at the statistics of how many doses of antibiotics uh, a two-year-old in the U.S. is getting uh, by the age of two, it's something between five and ten doses of antibiotics, which is unbelievable. And then that increases over time. You know, part of the fault are overly concerned mothers, hypervigilant mothers, who think every time the the kid has a, a, a severe respiratory tract infection, they, they need to get an antibiotic, and they go to their physician. And many GPs or pediatricians will then give in and say, um, you know, he, here's the prescription. And we know that viruses do not respond to antibiotics, you know, so it's a complete ineffective um, treatment, which has this major uh, effect, damaging effect on, on the evolving uh, microbiome. And this early phase is particularly important because the microbiome is programmed the first three years of life. The, the basic design, the basic um, ecosystem design is accomplished in the first three years. And so everything that you do during that time, it's particularly vulnerable, you know? So we all, <clears throat> most people in Western societies go into this world with a compromised, with an antibiotic compromised uh, microbiome system. The effect later in life is not as dramatic. So there's studies, most people bounce back and we come back to the resilience from a one dose of an antibiotic. Um, a lot of people bounce back after three doses. But then depending on how stable your ecosystem is, some of them, some people will not bounce back and they will then have, so if as an adult, if you have a history of having received a lot of antibiotics as an infant, and now you get one or two or three courses of antibiotics, your microbiome will further be compromised. And, uh, and we do this still today, you know, a condition called, um, Irritable bowel syndrome, common condition, or IBS. So one of the FDA-approved therapies is treatment with an antibiotic. Mm. You know, which, when you think about the implications of what I just told you, yeah. is the last thing you would want to do. Patients yeah. feel temporarily better with that antibiotic, um, but many of them, the symptoms come back, and then the response is, well, let's do another dose. And right. I've had patients who had ten. 10 doses of this antibiotic, you know. Um, so clinical medicine has not learned, in my opinion, enough from, um, from the insights that we have now about this damaging effect. It's not the only reason I think that we see this progressively declining diversity and, um, um, you know, richness of the microbiome and the increase of diseases related to this, like autoimmune diseases or allergies or... Um, but it's definitely a big one, you know, yeah. and which could easily be changed. 
Yeah. As you mentioned, it's setting us up for more long-term problems potentially. And you also mentioned that this was a game changer in health and having so many advantageous uses, but it's just kind of been transitioned into a place where it's so, it's, it's a thing that we quickly jump to. And as you mentioned, fr from patients demanding it to healthcare practitioners being a little bit um, overzealous or being, being very quick to pass out a prescription for antibiotic when I think we've also gotten to a place where we're not used to just being sick as well, like colds and flus and things of that nature and allowing our bodies to recover. And I think that our bodies are also having a harder time recovering because of the loss of all these microbes. And I wanna what? mention this too, because you mentioned the inoculation when we first come into the world. So that bathing and that kind of um, download in a sense of our, uh, of our bacteria cascade and plus, making it a more and more sterile environment that we're living in, that our kids are living in. And this is what I want to ask you about, which is in the book, you highlight something that should just jump right out at us is the fact that our chronic diseases, not just infectious diseases, but chronic diseases are happening in younger and younger populations now, whether it's hypertension, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, the list goes on and on. And you make the connection between that and our microbes as well. Yeah, so this is one of the more worrisome trends, you know, um, <clears throat> and one particularly striking example to me is being a being a gastroenterologist. So the colon cancer screening guidelines, you know, that used to be at age 50. Um, and then people have found, and this colon cancer screening um, has had a beneficial effect. So, you know, fewer people die from colon cancer. But what's been noticed that that the ons now the the onset of of colon or the first appearance of colon cancer has gone <clears throat> down to age forty. So now it's not a complication of 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 uh, people getting older, but it's it's really a younger population. Similar things have happened with diabetes, um, you know, with with autoimmune diseases like um, inflammatory bowel disease. In all these seemingly unrelated diseases, we see this phenomenon that. On, on the one side, it's these diseases are starting uh, or exploding also in the developing world, not just in the developed world, um, but they starting at young and younger um, age, um, which goes along with what we talked about, this onslaught, uh, this massive attack, you know, this warfare really on, on microbes that yeah. we don't perceive as warfare, we perceive it as, as treatments. Um, but I think this this mindset really has to, you know, has has to change. And it's it's a combination. You know, initially it's 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 always particularly for the lay public. It's easier to say, okay, it's it's the antibiotics. But in the meantime, we know it's these multiple things that are happening at the same time. It's <clears throat> the changes in the diet the last seventy five years. You know, which obviously also affect. The microbes. Um, it's the amount of chemicals, or what we call xenobiotics in, in, in science, that we expose our microbiome to. So all these things have been increasing, and what we see now on a macroscopic level that we see these diseases coming, um, uh, you know, early in life. People don't. This is also a hallmark of this. People don't die <clears throat> as often from them. So we. Um, and the only reason is it's not because these diseases are decreasing in their frequency. It's because we're throwing 
an, a massive amount of medications at this problem to suppress the immune system. So their process of dying is longer. The, the process of dying is longer. It's not a healthy longevity. It's a longevity uh, bought with the price of more and more medications that everybody automatically gets, like the our statins, you know, for for metabolic syndrome, for heart disease. Um, so our, our society has really responded to these changes that we now understand why they're happening, not with going to the root cause, um, but by throwing, you know, this, uh, you know, from a scientific standpoint, it's phenomenal what these medications do, and they, but it's not a solution to this problem. You know, we, we, we can't continue like that. So I, I, I think people realize that, um, and, and one last thing about the antibiotics, and we forgot one source, <clears throat> is this exposure of our farm animals to, to antibiotics. So we consume meat that, from animals that is, is soaked with, with antibiotics. I believe 80% of the antibiotics used in our country is for, yeah. for cattle. Yeah, so even if you think, yeah, so you, you've gone through a natural birth at home, you know, without the sterile hospital environment, if you eat the regular food supply, you'll still get your sufficient dose of, of, of antibiotics, you know, because, and with animals, they're not even being used to, well, they're being used to keep them from getting sick because of the, the, the unhealthy environment that we raise our farm animals, but also to stimulate their, their, their growth. So, you know, for two reasons, um, for chickens, the same thing in chickens, many, most diseases in chickens are viral. So we're doing the same mistake with throwing antibiotics at them. Well, we know, you know, they, they, they don't do anything for these viral problems. S many examples in our food supply, shrimp farms, you know, throwing tons of antibiotics into the shrimp farms, main diseases of shrimp are viral. And so it's, yeah, so it's it's a pretty sad state, and it's gonna take dramatic efforts to on all levels, you know, from the political lobbying, you know, really curtailing lobbying efforts to to uh, to the aware consumer. I mean, that's ultimately where it ends up. So if people don't buy the products, then you know, there's not a market, and then. So I I think what people like us can do, we can raise awareness, you yeah. know. I really want everybody to get this. You just said something, one of the most mind-blowing things, which is, sure, we've got antibiotics in cattle feed to protect them against disease from the abnormal diets that they're being fed, you know, the soy and and all these things, even candy. You know, there's there's practices where cows are being fed candy, for example. True, wrappers and all. We'll put the video for everybody in the show notes. <laughs> but then, they'll, you know, but the main purpose of the antibiotics is to help them to gain weight faster. Mm -hmm. And I really want everybody to get this because you also touch on this in the book as well, the connection between the health of our microbiome and obesity and metabolic diseases and these things, again, that have skyrocketed. Changing that microbial cascade can make us better at assimilating calories, for example, better at adding weight to our frame not based on the diet necessarily strictly alone, which is a big, huge part. And I wanna talk more about that, but the change in our microbes can affect our body composition. Yeah, so this is interesting that, that this, this phenomenon that, you know, um, 
veterinarians and the, the, the meat industry figured out a long time ago that you can actually, they, they didn't think about the, the, the gut microbes of, of the cows, that so that played a role in it. But now we know um, that, that our gut microbial system plays a big role in, 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 in obesity and particularly metabolic syndrome with, with the immune um, activation that goes along with that. Uh, <clears throat> that you know, what benefited us on one side in industrial agriculture turns out to be sort of a, a major factor now in our, in our current, um, you know, healthcare crisis um, related to, uh, you know, I would say uh, the obesity part is obviously something, is a big problem. It's medically, it's more important, the, the associated metabolic uh, derangements that, that come with with increased body weight and body mass index. So it is shocking that, you know, I mean, again, we're, we're sort of adapting to this problem by, um, you know, now it's no longer politically correct to, like if you want to make a Facebook post and it has a picture of an, of an obese person in it or mention the word obesity or uh, overweight, then that's not politically correct. And you may actually risk that it's taken down. Um, and you notice in the in the news um, or in, in commercials, like all of a sudden, yeah. you know, you used to have these slim actors in it. Now all of a sudden, you know, at, at least half of them are overweight. So it's being it's trying to normalize that phenomenon, which is crazy. You know, um, I, I think people should much rather focus on what can I do not to not to go down this road of you know feeling okay if I'm overweight. Yeah, because really what we're looking at is health, you know, and I think that this is being reframed in a sense that it makes us, instead of looking at the health implications, like, hey, you're increasing all-cause mortality in your life for diabetes, for heart attacks, for the list goes on and on, rapid increases in autoimmune conditions, neurodegenerative condi conditions, the list goes on and on. And instead of us addressing the underlying issue, we're just normalizing things. And I think that, and I, I love the fact in the book, because I haven't really seen this research in book form much of anywhere else, except, you know, in some of the books that, that I've written, like coming out of the Wiseman Institute, you mentioned some of their, some of their data in your book as well. And they did this really fascinating study. They had folks across different time zones and they seen the, the change and shift in their their cascade of bacteria shifting to that, which looks more like that of a person who is overweight or obese. And so they took those samples from these folks and implanted them, fecal samples, into lean mice when they have this quote, fat bacteria cascade. Mm -hmm. And they also took bacteria samples from people who had uh, a bacteria cascade associated with leanness and just quote normal and implanted that into lean mice. The lean mice who received that bacteria nothing changed. But the mice who received the fecal transplant from humans who had the bacteria shift to more of a, a cascade associated with obesity, these mice became insulin resistant. They gained weight and they gained body fat, not changing anything else about their diet, simply from changing their microbes. And so I want people to really get the power of this in all aspects. And I want to circle back because I got this was one of the, like I had to put the book down for a second and just sit with this after I read this statistic, one of the biggest issues we've seen recently in our culture is this skyrocketing incidence of autoimmune conditions. 
right? This used to be something that was pretty rare in our population. Now it's become so normal. And the number, and I'd never seen the number firsthand, about 50 million US citizens have an autoimmune condition now that they're, that they're struggling with. And so can you talk about that aspect? Why are we seeing, which we already know the answer, such a, a rampant increase in autoimmune conditions and how does this play into kind of sorting out, and this is what I want to transition into, how can we address this? How can we fix this, the root, and stop treating the symptoms? Yeah, so the autoimmune conditions, it's a, the story is a little bit different from um, these other metabolic conditions and this, uh, you know, uh, this non-infectious, chronic non-infectious disease epidemic that we see in, in the heart and, you know, colon cancer and neurodegenerative diseases. This is something that starts again early in life. The um, so not only do we program our gut microbiome early in life, but we also train um, our immune system early in life to differentiate between um, harmful and non-harmful <clears throat> influences and differentiate between self and non-self. So self normally is is is, a, is perceived as a is a beneficial or should be tolerated. Uh, Non-self should be attacked. <clears throat> so with all these these things that we talked about early on, the, um, um, this increasing hygiene, the uh, um, being removed from from farm animals, from um, from dirt, uh, you know, in from the soil, from um, Everything is being disinfected, so the, this increasing hygiene, and so they gave this whole uh, this, this this whole area this 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 name, that the hygiene hypothesis, <clears throat> that we're no longer exposed to things like um, even parasites like worms, which were very common, you know, even probably 50, 70 years ago in in in, in kids to have a phase where they have worms. Um, also, organisms like um, um, H. pylori that you know, plays a big role in, in ulcer disease, but which has lived with us for um, hundreds of thousands of years with, with humans. And all these organisms and the parasites that, that, um, that in a young age, if the immune system is exposed to these, they train the immune system that this is not something that needs to be killed. Um, so this, this training phase requires influences from the environment, the exposures of non-lethal but but still you know foreign influences and we've eliminated a lot of this you know in, in this including the h pylori almost eradicated completely we don't know what the long-term effects of that is on uh, <clears throat> and um there's there, i mean there were many benign forms of, of of infections and infestations so now the immune system or the, the infant with the, with the, the immune system in that infant grows up without lessons of how to differentiate between self and non-self and good and bad. Mm. Um, and so this is our also rapid increase in allergies. Exactly. So, so it's, um, so now, you know, we have this, um, uneducated immune system that's hyper-reactive to a lot of things that should not trigger this immune, uh, response. And, uh, <clears throat> so I, uh, you know, I was, I bring, I bring up this example that our, our microbes are rapidly adaptive, have this ability to rapidly adapt to new situations, including this new, you know, uh, 
century of, uh, of extreme hygiene and in eliminating many organisms that we, uh, you know, we think, you know, are, are, are harmful. But the immune system, the human immune system doesn't have that rapid, so not, none of the human cells had that rapid adaptability. They react in the way that they are, have been designed by our 20,000 genes in a way that if something doesn't make sense, they ring the alarm bell. So, so now you have this rapidly changing different um, microbiome system that interacts with a much more conservative and less reactive immune system. And that triggers the, the alarm bells all the time. And, uh, uh, you know, something similar has happened. Uh, it's a little bit of a detour here, but I think it's a similarity. We have this phenomenal stress response system in our brain. I mean, the immune system is a stress response system. Yeah. We have another stress response system in our, in our brain, which um, has saved our species, you know, over evolution many, many times, not just ours, but every animal has that same system. It's the fight and flight response. And um, so today, you know, we don't have these kind of stresses, at, at, at least for the majority of the population. Still goes on in the world, obviously, to a large degree. Um, but in developed societies, it's, it's much less common. But we, what we do have is a chronic exposure to uh, an increasing level of stress. And th that comes together with this you know, more conservative stress response system in our brain, which triggers the alarm bells now constantly. And similar what the immune system does. So we have two systems that developed in evolution that now modern world um, become, you know, what we call maladaptive. They cause, they start causing diseases rather than protecting us against them. Yeah. So I, I think that's what we're seeing. And they interact, you know, this chronic stress interacts with the, the, the poor situation, uh, the, the, the compromised situation, our gut level. Yeah. You, you did highlight that as well in the book about stress, even acute stress, creating disruption with our microbes. But now we're just living in a constant fever, like a low-grade fever of stress. And I wanted to ask you about this because I've been staying on top of the data since the very beginning, just by, it's, it's really about the questions you ask. And now we've got uh, papers on the psychosomatic effects of COVID-19, for example. And I know for certain, and again, I could see this coming from a mile away, that there's a difference between healthy caution, being conscientious, and being inundated with fear, you know? And there's been such a campaign of fear that I've never, none of us have seen before in our lifetimes. And to the, to the point where people, of course, are feeling very paralyzed and disempowered. And I know for certain that that has had a major impact on our immune system function. But now you even bring to the, to the forefront that this even disrupts our microbial function, which is really the house in which our immune system is existing in the first place. Yeah, and so this whole idea of how, how stress, acute stress, um, but probably in a somewhat different way, but e equally disruptive. Uh, so acute stress leads to this, you know, upregulation of the immune system response to defend you against, you know, uh, um, in this particular situation, chronic stress often, you know, goes in a different direction. And 
It's it's really important to realize stress is not just something that happens at your at, at your brain level. It's almost like you have a mirror image of that um, state at your gut level, and every part of your gut, the, the peristalsis, the contractions, the secretions, fluid, acid secretion, mucus secretion, everything is affected by, by by stress. If you take a stressed individual, either with an acute severe stress or a prolonged chronic stress. <clears throat> And you could characterize all the systems in your gut, they'll all be altered, you know? And so not only the habitat in which the microbes live in is altered, but also some of these neurotransmitters, these stress mediators affect the microbes directly. They have receptors for our own stress mediators. So it changes their behavior as well. It makes them more aggressive. So if you have a, you know, if you have an enteric infection, and you're in a chronically stressed state. And so this is a very common thing. So people go, um, you know, go to Mexico, get a, get a, a GI infection. Um, there have been studies. If, if people go to Mexico when they're really stressed to, to de-stress um, and they get one of these infections, it takes long, it lasts longer and it's more severe mm-hmm. as if somebody is in a completely relaxed state to go, go, go on a week to... Wow. You know, um, to Cabo or somewhere. It's uh, so. Get that south of the border surprise. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it's it's clearly a reflection of what, what happens in your brain on, on, ongoing. We, we knew this for a long time, but now we know the microbes are also playing, are, are affected equally in, in, in a direct way by changing their behavior, their gene expression, uh, but also changing their habitat and their. So we know we lose certain lactobacilli during stress, um, and that has consequences downstream. Um, but we also make individual pathogens more aggressive to attack our our, our gut and uh, interact with our immune system. Yeah. So this should seem obvious again at this point. I think I've said that several times during this episode, but it's clearly, and now we have some peer-reviewed evidence coming out that it's created worse health outcomes for us. Uh, when we come in, into interaction with viral strains like COVID-19, for example, we should be stacking conditions in our favor to have a more favorable response because we're going to be exposed to novel things. Like this is just one. And yet the way that we've gone about this, I really think that we're kind of set up for worse health outcomes. Like we're, as a society, we're even less healthy than we were at the beginning of this, you know, more sedentary more abnormal sleep patterns, eating more processed foods, we've gained more weight, the list goes on and on. And now I would really love to to circle back because you said this term and it it, it burned me a little bit when you said it because it, it really does fit. And you said warfare. And putting it in that in that term is it can seem a little bit inflammatory, but it, it sort of is because we're going to war with the environment around us to destroy all of these microscopic organisms, not understand that we're made of microscopic organisms. And in a sense, this is like war against ourselves and we don't even realize it. And I was watching this commercial the other day from, uh, it was it was one of the big airline companies and they were just smiling and showing how they're spraying the planes mm-hmm. down with the electrostatic you know, sprayers and all these chemicals. And they're like, look guys, look how safe it is now. And I, and I can't help but wonder what is that going to do to our microbiome? And it's not just rooted in our gut as well. We have a microbiome in our lungs. We have 
our skin, the list goes on and on. We don't know what these things are doing to us. You know, in this effort to defend us from something kind of abstract and knowing that our bodies would be better defended if we had a healthier microbial cascade against anything we're, we're faced with. I, want, I would love to talk about now, what are some of the things that we can do to address this and going all the way back to for us, for kids and coming up in a sterile environment. There's a time and place to use some hand sanitizer, for example, but having it at the doorway and doing it 12 times a day, maybe it might be overkill, literally, because we, we have to have a healthy interaction to develop and support our immune system. So whether it's, you know, connection with people, whether it's, you know, being more judicious in our use of, you know, all these sanitation practices, what are some of the things that we can do to help to rebuild and fortify our immune system and our microbiota? Yeah, so certainly in, in, in terms of the uh, environmental exposure to, uh, to microbes, you know, being in, in spending more time in green spaces, um, I mean, something that has happened automatically is, was a good thing that more families have, um, have uh, selected or decided to have pets at home. So pets are definitely one source of microbes that, um, that infants or any animal really, f and it's unlikely that we will be exposed more to farm animals. I mean, you know, nobody's going to move. Um, and even though some people may want to think about to suspend their vacation on a, on a farm, you know, when, hmm. when they have young kids, um, have their kids play in soil in natural i think in cities that is mainly in 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 park spaces um diet wise clearly the, the biggest variety of um of plant-based foods that which more or less you know forces the, the gut microbiome to come up with with all sorts of microbes that are specialized on these different fiber products and polyphenol products from the plants. So the more diverse it is, the more you you really force your microbial ecosystem to be diverse. Uh, <clears throat> I would say, um, I mean, the use of disinfectants and um, I mean, that will certainly go down from the extreme uh, situation in, initially. So, I mean, you know, my wife came home from, from shopping and wiped every- uh, Yeah, my wife too. Food item. <laughs> Which is a terrible thing because so food is a is a big source of of beneficial microbes, you know, um, not just in yogurt or uh, you know in fermented products, but if you look at the studies on on a on an organically grown apple, you know, there's a huge amount of microbes on that apple when when you um, so many of our apples obviously they're, they're polished and waxed and everything they don't have this anymore, but. <clears throat> Um, to find the balance between, you know, being careful and, um, uh, you know, people still talking about we're not completely through this pandemic. There may be variants, you know, so this, what you talked about earlier, this constant fear that's implanted in our brain, this, this may not be over, you know, there may still be, so we'll continue to be the extremely uh, hygienic, but I would say from, from diet, um, mindset you know as we talked about stress is definitely something that is almost as as bad on on the microbial and, and gut health as as, uh, as as diet is um and exposure to um, to sources of outside microbes from our you know the, the food that we get uh, uh, 
the people we interact with, um, physical touch, that probably has not changed in families, but it's changed with other groups, social groups. We, we actually don't know what, what the impact of that, all the things we did during the pandemic had on, on our microbiome. I, I, I don't think we, we know the studies, you know, that looked at people that stayed healthy um, before the, the, the problem started to, to now. Did that lead to a decrease in, in, in our diversity? And, and will there be a delayed increase in, in autoimmune diseases? You know, will this boost yeah. the... Um, but it's not easy. You know, we, more and more people live in big cities, um, in apartments. Um, you know, like you take a place like New York City in small apartments. Um, uh, and it's not easy to sort of come up with, well, let's go back to the way we, it, it, it used to be, that you played out in nature and, you, you know, and, and it was easy to access the healthiest food. It's, it's, it's not that easy. I think it takes a real conscious effort um, by, by people to do that. If any of the supplements, you know, I mean, this is something that a lot of people um, started a huge business during the pandemic. You know, let's, let's strengthen our gut immunity. If, if any of these things really have a significant benefit on this problem, quite honestly, I, I doubt it. You know, there may in the future be, I mean, there may be things like, you know, polyphenols supplements that may have a benefit. We don't know that yet, but. And that's um, even addressing it more at the root, which is the polyphenols feeding yeah. the microbes. Yeah. But you go through and you talk about, you know, this, there's been a major shift in awareness of the importance of probiotics, for example. And so people just, I just need a probiotic, but there's very little clinical evidence that they're effective, especially when people are maintaining and doing the same things they're already doing, like this magical pill is going to fix the problem. Yeah, this is, this is a very important point. Um, if you maintain your lifestyle, you know, the way it's been for, and then you think you now taking this probiotic that has 10 different organisms in it and in, in billions of uh, concentration. 75 million billion yeah. strains yeah. of Yeah, yeah. It, it's just, if you think that that counteracts, you know, your, your lifestyle uh, impact on, on, on gut immunity and gut health, it's a pure placebo, you know, that if you change your lifestyle and you add certain um, Certain supplements, you know, um, I've sort of gone back and forth with this to further enhance it. You know, um, some of these anti-inflammatory substances like turmeric or, um, you know, certain 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 polyphenols and green tea or, or green tea. There, there may be a benefit to it. But as you said, the, the scientific we, we don't have the scientific studies and we'll probably never get them because these companies sell enough of these supplements without science. You know, it's, it's almost like something, people are willing to spend a lot of money on many of these things without ever having seen the evidence. That... Let's talk about how something like intermittent fasting affects the microbiome. Yeah, so a very interesting thing comes back to, you know, one of the things that I promote in, in the book, it's important what you eat and where the food comes from and when you eat it. You know, it's really these three criteria. There's been a lot of studies uh, in animals, in, in, in mice on longevity and on 
metabolic health over you know probably three decades, all of which pointed in a beneficial to a beneficial effect of, of intermittent fasting. Um, there's some human studies, um, growing number of human studies now that try to demonstrate that that works in humans as well. And um, during the study period, uh, many of these are effective, um, decreasing inflammatory molecules in, in, in your body, weight loss. The problem with most intermittent fasting is that it's pretty not practical for the majority of people. That's what I would say, you know, and the reason that if you follow somebody after a year, most people have regained their weight and, you know, have, have switched back to their old metabolic um, uh, derangement. So one of those techniques, this time-restricted eating, I find the most attractive and can't back it up with a ton of human research, but it's certainly practical. So we've done this in our own family uh, during the pandemic where you could experiment with this better because you didn't have to commute and everything. And so we basically compress the, the time where you put food into your intestine um, <clears throat> to eight hours or less and for, leave it empty for 16 hours. That has a lot of theoretical benefits just on the gut itself. It, this having an empty gut will trigger, will completely switch the contractile activity of your gut, the peristalsis from a pattern where you grind and go back and forth and maximize absorption to one uh, pattern that goes a big contractile wave going through your gut from the esophagus to the end of your intestine every 90 minutes like a clockwork. That's probably one of the most important mechanisms to keep um, microbes, high density microbes out of your small intestine. It cleanses, prevents what you know now is uh, Received a lot of attention to SIBO, or small bowel intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So it, 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 it swipes everything down into the colon where most microbes belong to. Um, so it does that. It, it, at the same time, there's a, a wave of secretions that goes with these contractions. And so that alone is, is, is almost certainly beneficial for your health, for your gut microbial health and, and your gut health. And it's anti-inflammatory. So now we know... Um, from studies at the Weizmann Institute that you mentioned, um, that there's this diurnal variation of how how close the microbes get to to cells um, that line the gut and to the immune cells. So the distance between them and the mucus layer varies between day and night. And <clears throat> so the 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 longer the gut is empty. Uh, you have this 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 more beneficial interactions of the microbes with the gut uh, as, as opposed to when you feed it. It's also something of our modern lifestyle that we have shortened that empty period by snacking, you know, staying up till midnight or later, snacking during that time, and really reducing that window of um, where, where the gut is empty to just a few hours. Uh, so... Uh, I would say, and, and there, there are enough encouraging studies from mice. For example, one of the most impressive mouse studies is that they put mice on this what's called a cafeteria diet, which which makes you know it's 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 high fat, high sugar, where they gain a lot of weight and develop metabolic abnormalities. If you give that exact same diet in um, with a time restriction, uh, just in the eight hour period. 
And and obviously in, in, in the mouse it's it's kind of opposite because they are active during during nighttime and but it's the same time windows. If if you give this in a time restricted fashion, as opposed to letting the mice have access to it um, all the time, the the mice that eat the same amount of calories uh, during this time restricted pattern uh, will not gain weight, will lose weight, and will be metabolically healthy as opposed to the other. So that's probably one of the strongest pieces of evidence. And there's now evidence from some human studies, not 100% consistent, uh, that that's the case in humans as well. And it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, yeah. it's it's returning to our natural diurnal cycle, really, in, 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 in terms of our food intake. You just said something really remarkable, which is the same amount of calories consumed, but in that shortened window, it has this kind of protective effect in a sense, but I, I think it's beyond a protective effect, but there's these beneficial things that happen, like you, you know this as well, but I don't think we've made the connection to how our gut and our microbiota are influencing the increase in BDNF, the increase in autophagy and all these things. It's really rooted in what's happening with our gut, like signing the check for these things. And you also mentioned staying up late. And I love that you had this in the book as well, because it's not just about our food, which you repeatedly throughout the book talk about real foods kind of functioning at this, as this prebiotic source for our microbes to flourish. So real whole foods, a lot of plant-based foods. But I, I know you don't know this, but in my first book, Sleep Smarter, and this came out, I think it's about five years ago now, there's a chapter called Fix Your Gut to Fix Your Sleep. And I have many of the same tenets, which it's not trying to throw a pill at it, but what are some of the foundational things? And that's what I want to ask you about this, because how in the world can our sleep patterns influence what's happening with our gut? Because one of the things that I was kicking around at the time was that it seems to be like there's a changing of the guard that kind of takes place with our sleep patterns, with what's happening with the activity in our microbes, kind of like our microbes need sleep too, or they need rest too, in a sense. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, there are... Uh, I mean, certainly we know that during REM sleep, so we have these different sleep phases and during REM sleep, there's this massive activation of the autonomic nervous system that affects, you know, all parts of our body, the heart, the heart beats faster and blood pressure goes up and that also affects the GI tract, you know, mm -hmm. and so this normal cycling between REM and non-REM sleep is definitely something that the microbes experience in a significant way. and which will affect so you know so the people at the Weizmann Institute call this the geography of the of 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 the microbiome how how close they get to the to the gut wall and how close they or how much they're able to affect gene expression in intestinal cells and in immune cells which then goes from the gut to the liver and affects you know metabolism in the liver and um so yeah, it is kind of remarkable when you think about it is that, you know, REM sleep um, and when we had these vivid dreams, the only reason we don't wake up is because we inhibit, the brain inhibits our muscular system at the same time. But it's as if we are in, in very emotionally arousing situations, you know, uh, several times during the night. And so clearly what we know about microbial uh, changes during emotional situations, that happens during the sleep just as it does when we're awake, we just don't don't know about it, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, from a, from a general standpoint, um, 
one property of healthy ecosystems are, are temporal oscillations or variations. So the healthier a system is, the more regular are the oscillations. And so diurnal variations are the most, the most important ones for, for life on Earth. Um, but then there's others, you know, other frequencies of oscillations, food intake. Um, and I, I think the more that we stick to these natural rhythms, uh, the better it is for, 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 for the ecosystems inside of us as well. If we, I mean, the thing that we do, you know, sitting in front of the TV at night, um, it's not by coincidence that you're being bombarded by all these food advertisements. Uh, snacks, un uh, unhealthy foods. You know, it's it's not that. Yeah, there's not a broccoli commercial on. Yeah, no, no, it's a night show. And you see this till midnight. You know, so, right. and we know that that influences behavior. You go to the fridge when you see this, um, and you feel like you want to eat something. Um, and ironically, at the same time, you see the commercials for how to treat your your uh, autoimmune diseases and your uh, your hyperimmune related diseases and your erectile dysfunction so so you, so you get both of those things at the at the same time you know it's, it's it's ironic you can actually learn a lot about our how our society has moved away from a a balanced uh you know encouraging a balanced lifestyle just watching the commercials right what goes on there because uh, yeah it's very smart people that are behind these right. commercials and it's written right it's right there right in front of our faces but it's just kind of we don't really see it anymore it's just we've kind of see it as normal so, well, basically picking up from that, we've got this powerful interaction between our, the health of our gut and influencing our sleep and our sleep also influences the health of our gut. So these are deeply interacted and um, have a deep inter interactive relationship. So I put it like that. And one of the little fascinating nuggets, I'm just gonna throw this out there. When, when I was in my university classes, I was taught that melatonin was produced in the pineal gland. That was it, really that simple. But more recently, now we've seen that, and again, peer-reviewed evidence, there's upwards of 400 times more melatonin in our gut than in our brain at any given time. And you could even have your pineal gland removed, which I don't recommend, by the way, but your levels of melatonin will still remain relatively consistent you know, in your gut. So the story is so much bigger. And I love that I'm so grateful to have you on because you are somebody who's truly a pioneer. It's 40 years you've been in this space. And before we got started, I was like, people probably thought you were a little crazy talking about these things and this interaction. And now to see your work and all the things that you've planted start to sprout out throughout so many different areas of health and how everything is interconnected. What I know is going to happen is we're going to see more work being done around heart health in the gut, around lung health in the gut, around brain health in the gut. And with your last book, you really focused on the gut-brain connection. And now in this book, the gut-immune connection. And you didn't know the pandemic was going to happen, but you got to work on this subject matter because it is that important. So much of our immune system is, is rooted in our gut health. And the last thing I want to ask you about is the One Health concept that you talk about in the book. Can you talk about that? Yeah, the One Health concept is something, you know, it's... It's the last chapter of the book, not by coincidence, but going through all the individual systems, um, you know, you ultimately realize, wow, this is really, this is all part of a <clears throat> health and disease is all part of best, it's best understood 
if you do it as part of a systems problem, um, that at, at multiple levels, um, this, this global system, this one health system can be affected and uh, then you have ripple effects. So if you start out with, with gut health, yeah, it's, it's the health of the, of, of the microbes and the way they interact with the immune system. But then you realize it's heavily influenced by what we feed um, our, our, our microbes. And then, you know, where does this food come from and what happened the way this food was produced? We talked about this a few times, the, the microbes in the soil, how they affect the, the nutrient content of the plants uh, and how that affects benefits our uh, you know, our uh, uh, microbes. Um, to understand gut health and our, our brain health, um, so we think they're all different things. In medicine, there's specialists for all of these that deal as separate entities. But really, I, I think you have to look at all the other aspects that are related to this. The, the health of our environment that has affected the, the, so the health of the soil, the health of our farm animals, um, and ultimately the health of the planet um, with, with climate change. Each of these things are, are in some ways interconnected. And I cited one study where they looked at microbial uh, uh, interactions of, of microbial systems in different parts of, um, so on, on animals, in the soil, on humans, different parts of uh, uh, the water. <clears throat> And you can create a network of all of these, uh, you know, microbes that in some ways are interacting with each other. And given the fact that, you know, they have millions or hundreds of millions of genes that can do all kinds of things. <clears throat> it sort of gives you this idea there is this one underlying system that is being compromised now that uh, creates disease states at multiple levels. And, you know, we, we unfortunately, we live in a time where we see them all now, uh, if, if you look at it with open eyes, from, from our gut health, our brain health, to um, soil health, um, health of plants, animals, and, and, and the environment. Uh, I, I think this is something that should be taught to, to children yeah. early in school, that this interconnectedness of, of all these elements uh, that they all play a role in, in our health. So if, you, if you're concerned about the environment, you do something for your own health as well. Um, same thing, if you want to create the optimal diet and environment for your microbes, you need to think about the, you know, the environmental health at the same time. Um, so this term has been used, has been created. I, I forgot now where it first came from, the One Health, where it was animals and humans. But I think this, this goes much further. This really links every ecosystem on, on the planet uh, together. And, um, and I spent you know, a whole chapter in, in, in the book about explaining this whole network science that's uh, trying, beginning to explain this on a scientific level. Um, and I think it's moved, this is moving so rapidly in the scientific field that this will impact our understanding in medical textbooks, medical teaching, and... 10 years by the time it gets into the textbooks and yeah. to the curriculum. Um, but it will definitely change the way we look at health in, in general. Yeah, it takes time. And it's thanks to people like yourself putting the data together, making it make sense, and really pioneering against odds, against pressure, 
and making it available. But, you know, like you mentioned, the change does take time, but it's happening right now. And so really grateful for you putting this together for everybody. Can you let everybody know where they can pick up your book and just anywhere they can get additional information? Yeah, so, you know, they can order from, from any bookseller as of Tuesday, June 8th. You can even pre-order it if you can't wait till Tuesday. Um, now, um, um, more information on this whole topic that we've been discussing um, is, uh, is on my website, emramayer.com. And when you go to the website, it'll ask you to sign up for the newsletter, for the free newsletter, which will deal with topics from the mind to the gut and to the environment, to this one health concept, which comes out every, uh, every two weeks. Um, and then, you know, we're visible on, on all the social media, but all this information is, is on the website. So I would, anybody who's interested in knowing more about this, um, um, you know, order the book or order both books if you haven't read the first one um, and, and go to the website. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is an incredibly important conversation and topic. And I think clearly based on the evidence you've presented that dialing in, focusing more on healing our gut, supporting our microbiome can really help to fortify our immune system moving forward. So I appreciate you so much for hanging out with us. Well, thanks, Sean. It was really a pleasure talking to you. Awesome. Dr. Mayer, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. One of the most mind-blowing statements during this episode for me is when he said the fact that today our citizens have uneducated immune systems. Now, if you think about that in the context of what is our society built upon, what is of the utmost importance in our society, it's education. Education is, is the way to achieving your goals. Education is the way to innovation, to changing society. But what about the education of ourselves? What about the education of our immune system? The very thing that allows us to exist, to have life, to aspire towards those higher order levels of education. We need to educate our immune system. And right now we live in an environment that is taking away educational opportunities in the form of sterilizing everything, anything and everything around us. You know, when I mentioned during the episode about the electrostatic sprayers on the airplanes and the commercials trying to get people come back and fly with us. You see, we're spraying all this stuff all over the seats, all everywhere, all over this plane, just like we're spraying your food. Look, it's so safe and protected. And not understanding again, what is the impact that it's having when we inhale those compounds, which there is a 100% chance that you are inhaling those chemical compounds, 100%. What is that doing to our lung microbiome? Do we know? How is this approved to be safe? And he mentioned during the episode that some of the early data that has allowed such rampant use of pesticides and fergicides and rodenticides, the tens of thousands of chemicals that have been approved for use by the EPA, is studying the impact that it has on directly on human cells. But also keep it in context too, when we're talking, oh, it doesn't hurt our human cells. Those are short-term instances. What happens in long-term with cancer development, for example? Cancer takes time. For us to actually be able to, 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 to cat, quote, catch cancer, to be able to see the manifesta manifestation of a tumor, Sometimes it could be years in the making before you realize like, wow, can't, something happened in the cell replication process and now we have a cancer tumor that has developed. 
but the roots of it, we don't see that in the short term. But what he mentioned was, okay, so we've got chemicals that are approved because it appears that they don't hurt human cells directly, but they definitely hurt our microbial cells that are truly regulating what's happening with our human cells. The very root, the essence of who we are, the soil, really, if we're looking at our microbiome, it's really the soil that our health is being grown in. And taking away these educational opportunities in the form of sterilizing these hyper-sterilized environments, you know, that we're literally, we're born into those conditions. But, you know, with all of the, the different cleansers and chemical products and, and compounds, sure, yes, we want to make sure that we're not interacting with pathogenic organisms. But we evolved. We got to this place as humanity, having a resilient, healthy immune system that interacts with these things. And we just are, our microbiome, our immune system, literally just, it just pops this collar. It just gives a little collar pop. And keeps it moving. It brushes it off. All right. It brushes it off or it interacts with the microbe, learns and becomes better. And then that's passed on to future generations. What's happening to us now? We know this for certain. We're passing on poorer microbial templates that download that we get from our parents, from the microbes to what's happening with our genetic expression. All of these things are shifting in negative ways right now. And the results speak for themselves. Every single, if we're just talking about the domain of chronic diseases, in the last few decades, the numbers have skyrocketed. Heart disease, Alzheimer's, lung disease, liver disease, kidney disease, diabetes, obesity, autoimmune conditions, the list goes on and on and on. We've become a culture where sickness is the norm. Health is abnormal. And then we're talking about, you know, a, a new normal. Yeah, it's been like that. It's a new normal, but it's not okay. We don't want this to be normal. I want you to strive to be weird as f right now. I want you to be super weird right now. We don't want to be normal. We want to be weird. We want to be the weird, healthy people until that becomes the norm again, all right? When, when being weird is socially acceptable, all right, which is being the best version of ourselves, showing an expression of humanity and health that we are, we're given by birthright to experience these things, but we're lacking in these educational opportunities because we're, we don't have our hands in the soil. We're not able, we're not interacting with other people and getting in close contact. That's training for the immune system. That's downloads for the immune system. That's getting new apps that do cool stuff. And we're not getting those opportunities. We're less and less. We're more and more isolated. We're more and more isolated from our environment. And we're a part of the environment. That's one of the things that I love about his book is talking about the biological systems understanding that we have in science right now which is wholeheartedly looking at, because some, our, our system has gotten to a place where it's zooming in so much that it's looking at the tiny minutia, right? There's this thing that we found, this tiny, not even microscopic virus that's causing disease or this tiny, tiny bacteria that's causing a disease or fungi and not seeing the system as a whole. We need to do both. 
And the whole is we are a part of the same organism. We are a part of this system of planet Earth. And that's a part of the system of the Milky Way galaxy. And it just expands from there. We are a part, we're kind of like tiny microbes on the Earth's cellular body. And how are we functioning? Do we have the self-fulfilling prophecy of, of killing all the microbes or killing the dangerous stuff that's going to take us out? Or are we functioning in relationship to expanding our health and wellness and supporting all the other microbes here on the planet and being healthy and robust and having good information that we're you know, sharing and, and moving forward to future generations? We are part of the cellular body of the planet. And so the faster we can get back into accordance with this, this is that ancient, our ancestors knew this piece already. And we've gotten further and further away from this. And we think that we're separate in some distinct way from nature. All right. But so lacking education, not getting those interaction points to develop our immune system, but also miseducation. All right. This is going to be the new album. Lauren Hill is going to make a comeback. Miseducation of your microbiome. All right. It's going to be the new hitter. It's going to be some hot singles, all that. The miseducation of your microbiome by being bombarded with all of the synthetic chemicals that humans are tinkering with now. Just in the last few decades, we've never had these things, these exposures in any of human evolution. And now it's not just a little bit, it's a lot in the air we breathe, the water we, we drink, the food that we eat. It's everywhere. It's really inescapable. Even if you're eating the, the organic kale that you've grown in your incredibly biodynamic guard, all the good stuff, right? All the good stuff you could name. Because of the environment that we're in, you're still going to be picking up DDT that's been in the atmosphere and in the environment for decades, right? You, we can't escape it. But when are we going to say enough is enough and, and stop miseducating our immune system with this hyperexposure to the pesticides, herbicides, rodenticides, the chlorinated water, the list goes on and on. Are there better ways to go about these things we've accepted as normal? And absolutely, you know there is. That's the thing about us. We're innovative, right? But we have to pay attention and realize that this is a problem for the change to take place. If not, it's just going to be business as usual until we as humanity are just a footnote in the history of this planet. We can change it. We've got the opportunity right now. We've got to start to pay attention to the things that matter and start to work on this miseducation, right? The exposure to these things, the stress as well as we talked about in the episode, how that miseducates our immune system, how, that, how this miseducates our microbes, the effect that stress has on our microbes. We have this data now, okay? But this would seem obvious. This would seem obvious. And so moving away from the miseducation right now proactively being pro-education for our microbiome, being pro-education for our immune system in a way that's real, in a way that's sustainable, in a way that's in alignment with life and not treating symptoms superficially with new, this drug, this injection, this treatment, all of these external things bypassing the very interface of our bodies and our environment, which the hub of that is our gut. That's how we most directly interact with the world environment 
the, the world around us, which is putting things from outside of our environment, you know, the food that we eat into our bodies. It's such an intimate act, an intimate experience. And we're literally getting to, to decide what we're making our, our bodies out of, what are we making our, our microbiome out of, what are we making our immune system out of? We get to choose. Right, so there's a lot of empowerment here as well, but I hope that you got a lot of value out of this episode. And if you did, please make sure to share it out with your friends and family on social media. You can tag me, I'm at Sean Model on Instagram and Twitter and at The Model Health Show on Facebook. And of course, you can send this directly from the podcast app. You could text it right to folks and share a little bit of inspiration, empowerment, education, and let's keep this momentum going. I appreciate you so much for tuning into the show today. We've got some epic shows coming your way very soon, so make sure to stay tuned. Take care, have an amazing day, and I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes, you can find transcriptions, videos for each episode, and if you've got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome, and I appreciate that so much. And take care, I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.